Hello, listeners. Yamina here. Welcome to the Dr. GPCR podcast. Before we dive into this episode, I have a few announcements to make. We are launching our GPCR consulting services. More information will be available soon. In the meantime, if you need support with your R&D project, understanding the pharmacology of your receptor, or need help getting an idea off the ground, email us at hello at drgpcr.com. We have fantastic talks coming up at the Dr. GPCR Virtual Cafe. Visit drgpcr.com slash virtual dash cafe to see our upcoming live events. Get your tickets today on Eventbrite. Don't forget, space is limited. To become a speaker or to sponsor an event, you can fill out the form on the main page of the Virtual Cafe. Go to drgpcr.com slash virtual dash cafe today. Are you subscribed to our monthly newsletter? Stay on top of all your GPCR news by subscribing today at drgpcr.com slash newsletter. Also, to watch previous episodes of the Dr. GPCR Virtual Cafe or the podcast episodes, subscribe to our YouTube channel today. Last but not least, stay tuned for more information about the upcoming Dr. GPCR Summit held between September 13th and 19th, 2021. Visit drgpcr.com for more information and how to submit your talk. And now, let's dive in. everyone, this is Yamina from Dr. GPCR, and I have the great pleasure of talking to Dr. Brian Airy. Uh, this is our second, uh, this is part two of our conversation. We had so much fun, Brian. Thanks again for coming back. <laughs> Thanks for the invitation. It's, uh, it's exciting. It's, it, the, the podcast is incredible. I really, really enjoyed watching them. So congratulations to you on a great job. Thank you. Thank you so much. I really enjoy it. And uh, it, it cannot be as good as, as the guests that, that come on, on board. So last time we talked a lot about your career, uh, the book that you wrote, which I haven't had a chance to look up, but I will, I promise. And uh, so as everyone knows by now, at least those who have have had listened to episode one of our discussion, you're a scientist in industry. Yeah. And um just a real quick, uh, you know, idea on on where you started. If I remember correctly, you started out in academia, and at some point you had the opportunity to go into industry, and it was uh, you never looked back. That's basically the story. Yes. <laughs> well, I mean, it was there, there was a choice to make, and you came to a crossroad. And so I just I I, you know, there was it was not an easy decision as we, we talked about. You know, there was a lot of angst, but in the end, you had a. D- d- you don't know when the next opportunity is going to come, so you have to take the one in front of you. Exactly, and if I remember correctly, you are you have a long arm, an arm long uh, worth of of titles, and you're leading a team of about seventy people. Yeah, in an interim basis, just to be clear. But, 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 yeah, but still, it's been a lot of fun. It's, I've I've really really enjoyed a lot. Of it, so. Um, I know we talked about this a little bit, but can you remind us how 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 do you manage those 70 people? Is there a hierarchy? How do you, because in my mind, yeah. when you say 70 people, it's like you're up 24 seven. No, no. So I mean, that's a, that, yeah, I, I can understand how somebody might think that, <laughs> but no, no, the, it, there's certainly a hierarchy. And, and, and as with anything in industry, there's a hierarchy of management um, and, and supervision. So, you know, uh, I report into people uh, up into the CEO. If you looked at the, at the ladder, you know, my, I ultimately <laughs> report into the CEO, but, but, you know, I have, there's a, there's a gradations of, of uh, supervisory management all the way through. And uh, so I have uh, at this point in time, um, 10 direct reports. Um, so those are the people that I actually supervise on a, 
on a daily basis. My job really in this interim role has been to drive um, and, and try to uh, maintain the organization um, functioning properly and efficiently, but also looking toward the future and what and developing strategy along with those guys. So it's not, it's not something that I just sit in a room and I come up with a strategy and I say, this is what we're going to do. And really those guys that, that are on the, um, at the bench or, or leading the labs are, are the people that really know better even than I do. Right. So you have to, you have to rely on them and their knowledge. So it's definitely a team effort. Uh, um, you know, I'm ultimately responsible, but those guys are so good. And a lot of them are really, really experienced. I mean, they have, you know, 20 years or, or more in some cases of experience in industry. So they know what they're doing. Um, so I, I tend to try to step in when I'm needed, but not to get in their way. Uh, because like I said, and especially in the, in the interim role, I mean, I, so I have basically have three groups. I have the mechanistic pharmacology group, which really was the group that I started that I know a lot about, and I'm a little bit more hands-on there. Um, but the, you know, the, the compound management and the core automation groups are, were really already well, really well established. And I just got this opportunity because somebody left and I had to, so they needed somebody to, to take on the interim leadership. But at the same time, you try to have your own impact, right? <laughs> it's just like, right. Uh, so that will be ending soon, probably in the next month or so. So, um, but I'll, I'll miss it. <laughs> that's that's so interesting because we talked a little bit last time as well about about your leadership style and the importance of communication and you know before we hit record we talked a little bit about you know year-end evaluations and what are your thoughts about uh, you know communicating with your team and how do you do that with your team on a regular basis well i have weekly meetings uh, i also have uh, monthly what i call one-on-ones if you will uh, where we just sit down for an hour or so and talk about issues or whatever but what i the industry is such a dynamic environment and when you're when you're in a support when you're running support teams like i'm running with that sort of reach across the entire research preclinical research end of of of, of a company like this, it's, you know, $130 billion, whatever it's huge, right? It's a lot of, it's a lot of stuff. Um, you have, to, it's really almost on a hourly basis. I mean, seriously, I, I get emails constantly and you have to address them in real time as best you can. Um, that's the part I really like about it. I like that excitement. You know, I get bored easily. Um, and so I don't like being bored. I've been in those situations before where I've sort of been languishing and kind of bored. And, and I, you know, I never wanted to get back there because it's really that that's when you really have an impact when you're when you're in the mix. And it can be frustrating and stressful. But at the same time, it's a lot of fun. Um so, yeah, I mean, that's that's really how you do it. I mean, there's there's so much going on. And the, in terms of communication, I always like to keep things fun. Um, that's something that I've sort of always had about me when I was at work. I um, Even when I first started doing just my first job, I, I always wanted to have fun while I was doing it. And so I try to keep it fun and relaxed as possible. Um, that doesn't mean there's not times to be serious, but, at, uh, you know, there's – if people are having a good time and they feel like you're approachable and they trust you, they're going to get the best. That's always been my overarching philosophy. I think, I think that resonates a lot with, with a lot of, you know, posts on LinkedIn and a lot of books that come out that, you know, basically tell you when an employee feels valued, when they feel supported, when they're, they feel like they, they, they have what they need to do their work. They're going to give you 150% of, of that energy. 
because yeah, it's about trust, right? So it, it's it all becomes about, it. about trust, and it also becomes about if they feel that you have their best interest at heart, which I do sincerely, and they understand that sincerity, they they will they will follow you anywhere. Um, they they will. Uh, and, and I posted something on LinkedIn yesterday about this because it's, I feel so strongly. I just happened across. I'm like, yes, this is exactly. I saw it. (laughs) I saw it and I was reading about it and I said, well, yeah, I think we're, we're all on the same page at this point when it comes to this. Um, This is the Dr. GPCR podcast. And last time we didn't get a chance to talk too much about GPCRs. You had mentioned that you're still working on GPCRs and, uh, but then it's a secret. So we wouldn't have, we wouldn't, we wouldn't be able to, to, to publish the episode, but since you're in industry, I wanted to, to ask you, can you tell us a little bit kind of in a, in a you know, step-by-step manner on how some of these projects that you worked on were initiated and how they went through all the different stages? Yeah, so that's really, clinic. you know, this is, again, everybody's going to take, approach it differently. And even you'll probably find different pharmaceutical companies have different approaches to doing this. But it really all starts with the disease that you're trying to target. And, and you start at that point, right? And, and understanding pathophysiology and mechanisms of pathophysiology. Uh, and once you you know, sort of, you can develop hypotheses by studying the pathophysiology or the mechanisms of pathophysiology. And from there, so as a physiologist, that, that always speaks to me, right. As a, as a physiologist, um, uh, trained physiologist. And that's why I'm most comfortable. Um, but then trying to reduce that to practice. Okay. What does that mean for the cell? What does that mean for the system? What does that mean for interacting with other systems? Um, and you know, uh, th- th- this is how some of the, um, I'll give you an example. So this is, this has already been published. So, um, at least in, in presentation format, um, you know, this, I, I got into endothelial function and, and trying to understand how, um, endothelial cells, um, lead to, our, uh, cardiovascular disease and what their role was. And again, that was a, that was a part of taking a path less taken. So I think I explained this last time I may have mentioned it where I went to my boss and I'm in this new area and I, I really didn't ha- have a whole lot of understanding about it. <clears throat> and I asked him, well, you know, what, what, where, you know, where's the opportunity? Um, and he said, well, nobody's working on this. So, uh, okay, let's go work on endothelial cells. And, and, and out of that, you know, came a really fascinating research program looking at mechanotransduction and understanding how GPCRs could function as mechanotransducers um, before anybody else was even thinking in that way. And, and um, so you start there and then you have to validate your, your hypotheses, right? So you have to, you have to make sure that, you know, there are tools available, for example, that's, um, that's a positive. Um, it, it's harder if you're really breaking the, the, the validation of the pathophysiology. So meaning, for example, when I got into the endothelial cell work, it was already well known that, that endothelial cells respond to flow, you know, um, the mechanical shear force and what that meant for atherosclerosis. So that was well established. They just didn't know, understand how it was responding. So that was a prime opportunity to step in and say, okay, maybe we can figure this out a little different way. Um, but that's really at the heart of it. That's where you start. And then um, you, you try to relate that to animal models, of course, um, and ultimately the human condition. Um, and, and then once you've got to that point, then you can really start to hone in on targets that might modulate that system. Um, there's a lot of people who think that because you have a micromolar compound, you have a drug. <laughs> Well, that, that was my next question is where, how do you select the best target and also 
when do you say, well, this molecule works? Yeah. So how do you pick the best target? So that's really, um, that's a real personal thing. Um, and, but in drug discovery uh, in the modern era, this, these are team efforts. Um, these are not done in isolation. So, uh, for example, you know, you'll have input from, from other scientists within your department. So in the case of cardiovascular disease, for example, you, you get input and in, in, in advice from people and, and you try to build um, through your data, you try to build consensus that this is a good project. In, in some ways, it's like trying to convince a, you know, a grant committee that your grant is, is worthwhile funding and um, it, you just do it in a different way. And so there is that aspect and in parallel to academia where you have to build consensus that your project is, is um, both of value to the, as a potential medicine, but also of value from the perspective that it's an investment that the company wants to make and will get something back from. So, and that's, you know, that takes a long time to learn. Um, but it, as with everything, uh, the more you talk to other people and the more input you get from other people, um, you know, you learn the the skill. Um, That's such an interesting, um, it's so interesting what you're saying because you can very easily draw a parallel about drug discovery and this process that you just described. And as you mentioned in academia, you know, getting the grants and then getting support and also you need results at the end of that period, uh, which will get you more funds and yep. obviously in industry, the whole goal is to get, get a drug out there because it's still a business. So you need a drug to, to go, go back and start again with different projects. Well, I think, you know, I want to stop you there because I think you said something, it's a business, but it's also about helping patients. And I think that's a critical aspect that people often don't understand there, you know, a drug discovery scientist doesn't go into a lab every day thinking, wow, I'm going to just make money for the company. That's not, that's not their, that's not their goal at all. I mean, and in fact, the vast majority of, of people go in really, truly wanting to help patients and, and to solve problems. And um, so I think that's really important. And you can see that. I think, you know, Michelle Bouvier is, a, is just a prime example of how to do this in, in, in a balanced way. You know, the academic part and the industrial part, I, I really admire his ability to to sort of span both worlds. Um, and as I said the last time, he's kind of a mentor. I kind of, even if he doesn't know it, um, you know, I, I kind of try to to emulate him in a lot of lot of things that he does. But um, agreed, agreed. I think um, the way the way I see the way I see the, the 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 money or the cash intake from from anything, it's it's more like a fuel. So you have a car. Correct. The car is the industry, whatever you want. But at the end of the day, you need that fuel in order to to realize your mission or to get where you want to go. Yeah, and early discovery, what we call exploratory work, is, is a difficult place to live. Um, and I know because I lived there for a long part of my career. <laughs> um, and and it's a it, because you get little recognition. Most of your ideas don't work, um, and you know you you spend a lot of time just turning the wheel trying to to find the target that's the right one. Um, in case of the endothelial cell work that I'm currently writing up or trying to, uh, <laughs> you know, in between my day job um, and my life, um, you know, that was a prime example. It was very exciting where we were able to find some really, really good targets um, uh, and at the same time break ground that, that hadn't been done before. So that was kind of like the perfect sweet spot of, of science where you're able to do new things and at the same time um, develop some new drug discovery targets. Um, what was I going to say? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think so. You have that early exploratory spot. It's tough, but you have to you have to be you know you, you have to have faith in your own ability uh, and 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 get help wherever you can. Really, um, you know, from other people, uh, from academic sources, from you know other people in your own team, etc. It's uh, it's interesting because I think the the early discovery part of of drug discovery sounds a lot like academia, where you're you're really have the opportunity to be creative. Uh, you hope for the best. And if, as you mentioned, you find that sweet spot where you're discovering something new, you get a molecule, you get a drug target that might that is worth pursuing, and then you have all the data together, that's the best step, the best way. But then oftentimes experiments don't work or the company changes their idea and says, well, oh, yeah. that happens. although this is interesting, but we are not focusing on this anymore. Yeah, there's a concept of, of industrial or or what's the word I'm looking for? Organizational patience. That's what I call it. Um, and there's, they have a certain level of patience. Um, and sometimes it, nowadays I think it's a little bit longer um, than it has been when I was in the, the meat of my career. Um, but certainly there's a lot of pressure around that, right. To, to turn out a, a target or, or get things moving along um, because, you know, in the end, there are other targets out there that they want to prosecute and they want to work on it. And if you're taking up resource to do that on things that they don't have a lot of confidence in, they're not going to stick around for that for too long. So you, you really have to show um, progress at all stages. And that's how you, and so you, the other thing you put, you, you picked up on was uh, getting more and more resource over time. And that's absolutely true. Right. So in order to prosecute a drug discovery target from the early exploratory stages into what we call full phase drug discovery, um, you increase incrementally the support that you get from across the organization. So for example, chemistry or, or um, add me help and, and things like that. Um, and that all comes into play into these large, when you get to a full phase program, you get into this large program that can be 30 people. Um, we're all working on the same thing. Which, which, which I think must be very rewarding when, when, you know, you start out with an idea and you talk to a couple of people and then you get to that point where you've rallied, you acquired enough data, but then you rallied 30 people around it and, and full funding and full support from the company. I think it's just, a, it's just, a, it's, it sounds to me that it's a very rewarding um, point to get to. Yeah, but then the pressure gets ratcheted up. <laughs> it's with everything. <laughs> There's a price for everything. You know, but no, it's really true because you're taking up, when you're at a full, when you've reached a full phase recognition or governance, what we call it, you know, so we have to present these programs and their progress over time to, to various governance committees, and then they will sign off on getting more support or whatever. Um, so, so again, it's sort of like constantly looking for new funding. Um, and you know, when you, you know, when you do that, then that comes with an expectation. Um, and so, you know, there's, there are current programs that I've been involved with for, for many years that I started that are, I'm not, I'm sort of loosely associated with now that, <clears throat> that uh, still, that, you know, they've been around for a long time. It's, it's time to, you know, it's trying to, to, uh, to put up, as they say, <laughs> up or shut up. Yeah, yeah, it's, it, it must be, I, I can only imagine the, the stress level of, that increases over time whenever a program gets more attention, more funding, more development. But then again, I think it goes with the excitation, the excitement of, of getting, getting into a clinical trial and, you know, getting. Oh into yeah. That, I mean, that's the overarching goal for every one of us, right? We want to get and say, okay, we, 
you know, got that drug to, to the clinic and, and let's see how it works. And, and um, yeah, I mean, that's the Holy grail. Um, the Holy grail is sort of working on, on compounds that actually make it into the human and, and, you know, treat disease. Um, but even the, that of getting something across to the clinical side, which gets more and more difficult because there, you know, nowadays we, the hurdles um, of safety are much greater than they were, say, when I first started. Uh, and rightfully so. Um, it's, uh, it, you know, you really have to make sure you have something that's really solid uh, before they're going to invest in it. Of course. And you don't want to jeopardize anyone, you know, patient's health. Of course. And you really want to make sure that. Whatever oh, yeah, you- that too. <laughs> At the end of the day, I think that that's the whole point. If yeah. if you have a molecule, although it may sound, you know, beautiful in, in cells or in, in mouse models or, you know, any animal models, but at the end of the day, you want to make sure that, you know, it works great in, in humans with limited side effects. Well, I think what's really kind of funny is over time, you become a really, if, if you work on a, on a project long enough from its inception up to the point where you're getting into the full phase drug discovery effort, um, especially if it's cutting edge stuff like what we're doing with endothelia, you become probably a world leading expert by that time. I mean, you know, because you're constantly doing basic research to try to understand the system better. Um, so there was a time, you know, I think I probably knew more about, <laughs> about um, the KLF2 pathway and how it affected endothelial function um, than anybody else on this planet. Because I, I mean, we had done so much legwork to try to show that, that was a valuable pathway Um that that it was it was you know we knew certain how all the all different kinds of inputs that ultimately ultimately I watched get published by others, but you know it, it's it's validation all at the same time right that, that you're on the right path. Yeah, I think it it must be uh, although it's not you who published it, but it's it's such a great feeling when you read an article and you say aha I knew it, I knew this is how how it was supposed to work. Yeah, it can be frustrating too. That's, that's and- the toughest part. That's the toughest part. We're all scientists and we're all trained in the same system. Yeah, and right and and so, um, you know, you it, that that's that that can be tough to deal with sometimes. But at the same time, you know, again, you got to keep the eye on the prize, which is you're trying to to treat disease and that's your your higher goal. um, Exactly. Exactly. Before we we hit record, we were a little bit talking about, you know, taking a path less traveled and and asking the questions in in science that may not be the, the flavor of the year or of the month. Uh, But I think, I think as just, as you just mentioned, seeing these, these discoveries being made and published by others and you know that you know you know that they're right because you've already gone through the whole process yes it can be frustrated but at the end of the day as you mentioned it's a whole it's a discovery path and you need to keep your eye on the on the prize as you mentioned but also still um when you ask those you know out of the out of the blue questions that you think are important and then it takes some time for people to realize well actually it's it is important yeah. you go home and you say, Oh, you know, I had the right idea from the beginning. <laughs> right. Well, you know, there was a paper that came out a couple of years ago on, on GPR 56, right. Mm-hmm. Showing that GPR 56 was a mechanotransducer in endothelial cells, you know, and, I, and literally I knew that about 10 years before everybody, <laughs> you know, um, and it's just, that's just the way it goes. You know, you, you kind of, but at the same time, it's not unlike parenting in some ways, you know, you're, you, you parenting can be frustrating in the heat of the moment, but at the same time, you keep your eye on the prize, which is developing and creating this relationship and, and, and healthy young adults. And, and that, yeah. that's the important thing. 
Exactly. I think I think you draw. Uh, I love I love the parallel when I think about my five year old. In my mind, what I want is make sure that you know he grows up healthy. He can think on his feet, and he can make his decisions. Uh, and you know, really be able to to stand on his feet and be a strong strong person. Yeah. T- take the right decisions that are that make sense to him, but at the same time, be able to logically think about things. Yeah, you can't, you know, I, yeah, you want, you want your children to be independent thinkers. I, that's what at least I did. And um, yeah. I got my kids into a lot of trouble at school sometimes um, <laughs> because they questioned everything. This is another topic we talked about before we record. Um, <laughs> you question everything. Uh, you know, I didn't really have a problem with it because I always want them to question and, and I want yep. them to, you know, draw their own conclusions. I mean, they don't have the same philosophies or perspectives on certain things that I do. Um, and I don't want them to. You know, yep. I want them to have their own thoughts. I think at the end of the day, if you can have, you know, an intellectual discussion with with your kids mm-hmm. uh, on on a topic on which you don't agree, but you still can defend each everyone can defend their own opinion. I think it's just the most rewarding thing ever. It's absolutely rewarding. Absolutely, that's how you know you've done a good job. I know, I know. I might. <laughs> I have a five year old, and just just a funny thing. So they were on Zoom last week because they closed the school for the three days and the teacher kept asking him, so Attila, what is the name of this? Can you answer me? And he responded very sincerely, no, I'm hungry. And I thought, I thought, I thought that was such a, you know, such a direct and sincere answer. I, I can't answer because I'm hungry. <laughs> I'm done right now. I'm done. <laughs> and the teacher took it so well. She said, well, you know, I think I understand you. It's almost lunchtime. <laughs> That's good. But, but I mean, to circle back to your other point about, you know, what makes a good compound, you know, yeah. um, there's a lot of things that go into that. And and I think that, you know, that's another art. Um, but th- this is where you, you, I have to say, no one, no one person can know it all. And n- no one person can, can really have the entire perspective of what makes a good compound. Um, obviously, there's a lot of things that go into it. Uh, you know, it has to have the right pharmacokinetics. It has to have the right, you know, pharmacology. Um, it has to have the right distribution. It has to have, I mean, there's so many different aspects of it. It's half-life has to be ideal. You have to have a, an understanding of how you're going to administer it um, in order to get the, the, the desired therapeutic effect. So that's why you have, that's why you have 20, 30 people working on it with, from different fields because those people have their expertise and they can tell you, I, I, I am, I am sincerely am amazed with what we can do with chemistry today. I, it's, it's mind boggling. I think, uh, I think it, it makes a lot of sense that you need, you need that team effort. And, you know, in, even in academia, we talk a lot about, you know, teamwork and, in industry, based on, on my limited experience, teamwork has a different meaning. But again, the goal is very different. But yes, having 20, 30 people who are all experts in their own field and, you know, putting everyone in the same room and saying, well, this is our target. This is our problem. Uh, how do we get there? And then getting that, you know, distilling down that path where everyone, for the most part, agrees because everyone has that that ability to get, add in that input, I think it's just it's just phenomenal. And as you mentioned, getting to a drug is is not uh, an isolated effort of one person. It's, yeah. it's and and this gets the whole concept of intellectual humility, which I'm also a big proponent of. Which means that if you're leading these large drug discovery teams, it's it's never about who has the right answer. 
um, it, it, sh- it shouldn't be. Um, and, 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 you know, there are people that will try to drive it that way, but it's not really, I don't think that's the most successful approach. It has to come from a place where we're all working in the, as a team, you know, on a problem and we have to find the best solution and people shouldn't get upset if their solution is the one that works, or, you know, um, or selected. And I, I will have to say that oftentimes mine are not, <laughs> but, but at the same time, you know, what you're doing is you're, you're, you're setting up an environment where people feel comfortable sharing their wild, crazy ideas. Um, and that, that just might be the one that works. So, uh, you know, that, that, I think that's another part of being a successful drug discovery scientist is the concept of intellectual humility, um, and understanding that you're, you don't know everything. And also being able to, you know, say something that doesn't make any sense, not because you need to say something because you believe that it might be the solution, but maybe that will trigger a question for someone else in the team and that will build upon upon that. I read somewhere that usually a good leader, a good team leader, usually when when you have a meeting, gives the answer or gives their opinion last because this way everyone in the team gets to say what they want to say and they're not intimidated by by you know by the big the big boss who may or may not be right with whatever they they're saying. Well, I'm not really a big boss, but uh, <laughs> I tend to, I do tend to try to be as quiet and, and let people. I always like to create a, a discussion. It, it I think it's you 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 create solutions through discussion and and sharing of ideas, um, however crazy they might be. Um, and the whole concept of there's no stupid idea is really true. I I, I feel at least when in the teams that I've led over the years. I, I don't really feel like we, we you should squash ideas because it just might be the one that that solves the problem. And there, this is really what drug discovery becomes over time is, is you're just solving problems, right? You identify a lead molecule that came out of a high throughput screen, um, a certain chemotype, if you will, yeah. which is has a certain core structure. And then you're trying to manipulate that core structure in order to get the desired PK or the desired ADME profile um, and there while maintaining therapeutic benefit. And uh, as you can imagine, that's kind of a tricky thing to do. Um, so it has to be a discussion. It has to be, um, a, a, you know, people sharing and, and, and creating um, to find solutions. And because that's really what it's all about. You're trying to you're trying to balance the solution for this problem with the solution for this problem. Um, and it becomes, it, but it, it's fun at the same time, you know, it's, it's, it's all fun. <laughs> Sounds like a, like an orchestra, you know, you're, you're sitting in the audience and you're listening to classical music and you're watching all these uh, musicians playing their own instrument. And then you're, you're there to, to harmonize everyone and, and get something, something out of it which in the case of music, it's, you know, a symphony. But in the case of drug discovery, it's to, it's to get to that molecule, hopefully. At least oh, I love close, that, I love that analogy. I don't know if it's <laughs> actually accurate, but I love it. <laughs> um, I, I think it, yeah, I think it, it really is. It's about, it, I think it's just about providing uh, a team environment where people are comfortable and, and, and it's not accusatory. Um, because mistakes happen, right? People are going to make mistakes. Um, I, I don't know if we touched on this before, but the other concept I'm really a, a big fan of is allowing people the ability to make mistakes without punishing them. Uh, and, because that's how you innovate, right? Yes, yes. And, and that, that's how, how you learn. I think mm-hmm. finding the way 
to go from point A to point B is very important. However, figuring out that going through Z before B, that it doesn't work is also very important. I think you the negative data, it's funny because um, when I was a PhD student, one of my colleagues, we were always getting, at some point we were getting negative data, negative data, and we were saying, well, you know, maybe we should like found the journal of negative data. <laughs> and I, I still think it's a really cool thing because people people spend such a long time working on these projects and, you know, you just show that actually it doesn't work, but that's also very important to know that something doesn't work. Oh, yeah, I, I absolutely agree. And so um, you're, you're right. I, I don't think that's the way that the system is built because, you know, the, the system is built to, to encourage people to to have new breakthroughs and, 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 yeah. and new things, but, but you're right. I mean, we can solve a lot of problems by, by refuting data <laughs> um, and saying, no, that's not how it works. And, and here's the re as long as you have the reason, right. I mean, if you can't simply say this is not the way, it, you know, it works, but if, if you have a reason for refuting a, a certain thought, I think that's a good idea. Yeah. And then, then I'm not, I'm saying, you know, you go through the experiments, you do the right controls, you have a hypothesis, and if the answer is, well, actually, this is not a good hypothesis, it may not have the impact that you wanted it to be. It's not going to be published in nature, but at least the person who is thinking about the same problem will know, well, these guys did this, and it doesn't seem to be working, and now you can actually take the make the decision as to, do I want to try it, or do I take it for granted that it's not working, and I get another idea and work on something or innovate from there. Wise. So you're very wise because that's the, that, that whole concept really plays into the exploratory phase of drug discovery research, right? When you're looking for new targets and, you know, I talked a little bit about validating targets and creating this data set to, to convince yourself and others that this target is of, of value. Um, you know, it's just as important to say, no, that hypothesis is wrong. And the earlier you do that, the better in the drug discovery process, obviously, because if you're, if you're, Garnering resources just for the sake of garnering resources to promote your career or elevate yourself within the organization, ultimately that's going to be discovered, and 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 the other thing is the company's going to waste a lot of money um, and time, but they could be sent on on could be spent on a, a target that actually has more value. So that sort of go no go go no go decision is really yeah. really important. I think so too, and I think it's. Um... It's not. It's it's a matter of time and energy. When you've spent so much time in the lab, or you know, or so much so much energy or funds on developing assays, and before even thinking about is this the right assay, is this the right question, I think that's uh, it's just. I had a, a supervisor who really, I, I um, his name is Dietmar Seifert, a uh, German guy. He, I really we're good friends, and and he was. Um, He's, he taught me a lot too. He's like one of the good, the good guys, uh, good supervisors I've had in my career. And because he, he really taught me the value of that killer experiment. Cause he and I were, were collaborating on the, on the KLF2 sort of mechanotransduction pathway business. And um, you know, he always insisted on doing really tough killer experiments to, to, to make sure that we were honing in on the right things. And, you know, I always was very appreciative of that because it, it can be hard to make those decisions. You know, when you got so many pressures from different things and you know that your career progression is 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 built on success, um, 
you know, that's it, it's, it's an easy thing to fall victim to. And, and to have somebody like that, who really is a, keeps you grounded and, and as to what's important and, um, you know, teaches you the value of, of, of making those hard decisions and doing those hard experiments is, is really, really important. So he's basically, I hope he watches cause I admire him tremendously um, because he taught me a lot. It's, it's so interesting. Yes. I think doing the right experiment and then really asking the right question, it can be a time saver, but also it can lead you to, to discovering something else, realizing, well, this is a good question to work on, or this is not the question you want to work on because this is not the way to, to get there. It's kind of like a, a Google maps, whether you want to avoid highways or, or not. Right. Exactly. To, no, that's right. To get, get to, to, to your destination. But the reason I, I just thought of this is because I usually, I don't like highways for some reason. And every time I go somewhere, I have to make sure that it says avoid highways. Oh, is that right? I, I like the scenic routes and, you know, it's, it's fall, it's the fall, it's winter, it's not too bad outside. So then why, why hurry? <laughs> why take the highway with a lot of angry people on the road here in, in the Boston area? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, the drivers are well known. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's very, it's very different. Um, have you had the opportunity to go, um, you know, from, from an idea and, and go, you know, follow that molecule or follow that pathway or develop that pathway into a clinical trial? Well, no, I've been associated with clinical programs, um, you know, from the research end that went, uh, not ones that I've, I've led um, per se, uh, I, you know, um, mainly because of what we discussed on there. There's been a number of, of things that I've brought to bear that were uh, basically out of scope over time and, and got shelled. Um, I still feel really strongly about the KLF2 pathway and, and um, the GPCRs as, as a potential treatment for atherosclerosis. But, you know, the fact of the matter is, is we don't work on that anymore in, at, at Bristol. And so we had to put that aside. Hopefully somebody will take that torch up um, and, and push it further because I have a lot of, as an anti-inflammatory pathway, I have a lot of um, uh, faith in it. Um, and I think it's sort of fallen out of favor, you know, at one time, you know, in 2012, 2014, you know, the KLF2 was really, really important um, in the immune space. And people were really interested in looking at these, these transcription factors, um, but it's fallen sort of out of favor um, with the whole PD-1, PD-L1 thing. And, uh, you know, no oncology, it kind of got over overwhelmed there. And I think, but the, the I, I, you know, I, I think people will eventually get back to it. Uh, over time hopefully who knows maybe someone listening at the at this recording will say well let's well, let me why i mentioned it <laughs> let me let me please do it <laughs> because it's good um I, I think that that um you know that but that's a pathway that's not really a target right i mean you yeah. can't yeah so it, it's not you know i'm not divulging too much there but it, you know and and the fact of the matter is i've already for, for the BMS people watching, I've already received PubD approval, so we're all good um, to mention it. But I think that, you know, those are those are things that that are really exciting. And and I you know, I would love to see over time somebody take that up and, and put it into the clinic because I, I have a lot of faith in it. Um, just based on my experience and what I you know, what we gleaned from studying that pathway. So for so long. Um, the, you know, but there have been a number of programs. I, you know, I, I did some, some key work for a Pixaban. I don't know if you're aware of a Pixaban, which is a factor 10A inhibitor. It's an antithrombotic drug. Um, 
Eliquis is his brand name. Um, so I was asked to actually, as a physiologist, I was asked to uh, join that team and, and develop some translational models uh, to to understand the antithrombotic potential of of factor 10A inhibitors. And um, I knew nothing of factor 10A <laughs> or the coagulation cascade, but I learned quickly. And, and, and actually I developed this, this, this cool model that I ended up publishing with um, Alan Tall. Uh, he applied it to some of the stuff that he was working on, uh, who's at Columbia. He's a famous um, atherosclerosis um, guy. And, <clears throat> but anyway, long story short is I developed an animal model because it was well known at the time that, that diabetes and obesity were associated with, with, with increased propensity for, for uh, thrombosis. So I developed, I took the OB, OB mouse and just cause, you know, again, applying my previous experience in endocrinology to a new thing. And so uh, took OB, OB and DBD mice and, and showed, yeah, these things are, have a prothrombotic state. If you look at, at markers of, of um, the thrombotic cascade. And then when we threw, you know, we, we then applied the, the, pro, the factor 10A inhibitors and showed that we could reduce those risk factors. Um, D-dimer is a classic one, which everybody knows D-dimer now because of COVID, but, um, you know, <laughs> but D we, we, with a D-dimer in there. And, and the, the fact of the matter is, is that it actually ended up sort of stimulating a phase two trial. So in diabetic patients. So, you know, you know, that's, that's kind of impactful. It was in the NDA. I was really excited about that. Um, but that's a situation where it was a, a breadth of work that on its own really wouldn't stand muster in a published forum. Um, I, I presented it at a number of different conferences, but it's, it, it, you know, we did, I just didn't have time to put it together in a, in a broader package that would have been sort of, uh, you know, suitable for a publication in a good journal. I don't like publishing in, in lesser journals. <laughs> I don't, I, you know, I, I'm much more of a quality over quantity kind of a guy. Um, so. I think a lot of us, I am too. And I think a lot of us are, are like that as well. But those are, that's an example. And, and then I did some other stuff for, for saxagliptin, which is a DPV-4 inhibitor uh, for, for diabetes, did some preclinical work on, on cardiac progenitor cells and um, stuff like that. I mean, my, I, you know, the, my career has sort of been, a, if there's an interesting question, I'm going to try to, to tackle it. And, and um, you know, I didn't really care. I've never really cared if I knew the, the field in and out. Um, so I'm sort of a jack of all trades. That's that's exactly what I was gonna say. You, you seem, based on on our conversations, uh, that you know, you you do have a basic understanding in a field that you you studied in, but then the ability to think that you learned it while studying in a specific field gave you the ability to learn basically anything and everything that you need to to solve a problem. Yeah, it, it inhibits your career. I will say that taking that approach is not an easy road. Again. Um, it's a common three theme of this discussion. <laughs> it's not an easy road, but the fact of the matter is it's an interesting one and it provides you with a lot of perspective on physiology in general. So from a very classical scientific approach, you know, I feel like I have a really broad understanding of physiology across many different systems from neuroscience to reproductive biology, kidney function, car cardiac function, um, uh, metabolic function and, and all that stuff sort of what you see is it's all just one giant syncytium and they all work together and they all, they all have their interplay. And um, so you can take the commonalities in those different systems and then apply it to almost anything. Which I think is very valuable in drug discovery and in industry in general. 
being a being that you know jack of all trades and being able to to very quickly understand and apply uh, you know knowledge that you've acquired in one system and translate it in a different system or you know put, putting these puzzle pieces together. So that's how I actually came across the whole mechanotransduction thing for for endothelial cells. Actually, so when I, I was working in bone, I was working as uh, I was actually in charge of the uh, in vivo pharmacology for all bone programs at BMS. That's what I, my original position at BMS was, and so setting up and running bone biology um, model. And I, you know, everybody is it was asked to put together you know new targets or whatever. And I, and the, the the best known anabolic bone um, building agent we know of is, is, is mechanical loading, right? So that suggested then that bone somehow responded to mechanical stress by building more bone. So I got into it. I'm like, wow, this is really fascinating, right? And just about the time I was starting up a couple programs and, and studying how osteocytes responded to mechanical stress, they decided they didn't want to work in bone anymore. <laughs> so they moved me to cardiovascular disease. And then when I worked on endothelial cells, I'm like, oh, they respond to shear stress. Yeah. I can take what I learned from the osteocytes and apply it to, to endothelial cells. And that's what I did. Um, so yeah, I don't know if it's necessarily something that applies to academia where you really have to be focused. And maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. I have, it's been a long time since I've been in academia. But it just seems to me that people need, in order to build your academic career, you need to be much more focused on a uh, on one or two problems as opposed to being more broad. Um, and I can be wrong, um, so I don't want to offend anybody, but it's my, my perception. I think it depends. Uh, I think it depends on the scientists and it depends on on the ability of, of that person to potentially collaborate. I think you can be very successful if you focus on, I don't know, one protein or one family of proteins, or you can be very successful as you brought up Michel Bouvier, where, where for him, because I did ask, I did speak to him. And I think by the time we published our, our recording, his episode will, will have aired. And I asked him, do you have a favorite GPCR? And the answer is no. And he's always been interested in drug discovery and in better understanding GPCRs in general. And the question was always, how can we, you know, um, what, what is the question? What are we looking at? And what are the receptors or what are the proteins that are implicated in this disease? Yeah. And I think, and, and look, his, his I can see that definitely knowing it's, my, yeah. it's, it's where, where he comes from. So I think it's, it's kind of you and your luck or you and, and the people you meet and you and the projects you work on in academia. I've, and it's, but I, I, on the other hand, I think being a basic scientist in an academic setting, at least for me, it was rewarding, but it was difficult. And you mentioned this, this, this one of the themes of, of our discussion today, that it's not simple and it's difficult is that I only had the energy or the mental capacity to work on one specific topic, which was chemokine receptors. Yeah. Do I wish I were able, I was able to work on different things? Maybe. But then again, I think it also depends on so I think you have a limited amount of energy when you wake up in the morning. And uh, if you're focusing on setting up a series of assays to answer one or two questions because you're working, quote unquote, alone, because you're responsible for the idea, you're responsible for the experiment, then you cannot become the jack of all trades because you're focusing on that little problem. And I think yeah, one of the... I think one of, one of the advantages of, of you know, being a scientist in industry is that the, the team aspect is different. The teamwork aspect is different. The goal changes. You don't have to... So 
you have to show results. You have to answer scientific questions and not prove that you can pipette. And I'm really reducing it to the basic or prove that you can run an assay. I think you can, you have to show that you can think about how to set up that perfect assay to answer that question. It's about application. And I think, but I think that's also, I mean, just from my experience, you see similar types of things in academia and, you know, where you're, you're again, you're shifting your, and, and you're manipulating your toolbox of capabilities to answer questions that, that arise um, in your, in your string of research. I think I, I see research in, in academia is more a temporally connected um, way of doing science where you, you know, you're, you're able to sort of follow things along over time, um, you know, and there's a certain aspect of that to drug discovery, but it ends, it has a defined beginning and it has a defined end. Um, and, and during when, in which time you have to come up with a new target if you want to, find. so, uh, <laughs> or, or a new application of something. And so, and the whole innovation and technology thing um, in my current job is really what gets me excited. One of the reasons why I took the job is it was that aspect of, of innovating and technology and driving it toward doing things that we haven't done before um, with certain technologies and, and how we can sort of move beyond, you know, antibodies. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know we talked about this as well. So here's my, my other question. So you're mentioning, you know, that the projects and targets have a specific um, lifetime or half-life and there comes a time when, you know, the plug has to be pulled. Uh, how did it make you feel the first time, you know, you came, you were working in bone and then they said, well, done. Well, uh, you cope with that. Well, I didn't cope well. Um, I was a little frustrated, uh, you know, and it would, but, you know, over time you realize your frustration is really built around insecurity and it's your own insecurity with learning something new. And so once you realize that you're able to conquer it. So, you know, I realized after, you know, a few weeks that really what I was upset about was not so much about not working in bone anymore. It was more about my insecurity of, and ignorance, if you will, of, of the new field I was thrust into. And, you know, I got through it. I, you know, you, 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 you put your head down and, and you start to learn and then you realize that you can learn pretty quickly because the one thing you, you understand, you know, about me in terms of my career path, I was really working in neuroscience and reproductive biology at Wyeth before I came to Bristol to work in bone. And, so that was an example of where I had to learn something completely new when I got into osteoporosis. The, the problem with that was it was such a, it was basically just a cup of coffee. You know, I spent two years working on it just at the time I was thinking I was mastering it um, and understanding it to where I could really ask some interesting questions. They pulled the rug out and then, and then you're like, Oh my gosh, I got to learn this whole thing new again. Um, the issues with that come with the fact that you're not going to publish papers. Um, you're starting over from scratch. So those kinds of moments do impact your career progression um and if you've done it as many times as i've done it you know your, your progression is pretty slow but the, the fact of the matter is is that you learn something else. again you have to keep a positive outlook and really look at the bright side you're learning something new and and you have a full breadth of, of understanding of physiology that perhaps maybe not many people have and and that's kind of that's the way i like to look at it you know I like that. And I like the fact that, you, you know, you were mentioning that it, it was hard and it's, it's a matter of, of, um, you know, learning something new. And I think as humans in general, we're always afraid of change. Mm -hmm. 
Oh yeah. Absolutely. And, and it, you know, you, you don't, you're not born with confidence. You build confidence over time. Mm-hmm. And yes, it may hurt when, you know, somebody pulls out the rug from under you, but um, at some point you get to a point where actually you jump up when the next time the rug is being pulled off because you know, what's coming. And right. Exactly. And you, you can see it coming and and then you learn how to adapt and, and, and quicker next time. Um, I think I learned that when I went in, into thrombosis, you know, that was a, that was a tough thing because it, it was a relatively drastic step. Um, osteoporosis is highly endocrine regulated. That was a comfort space. I didn't really have too hard of a time, but then going into the cast, the thrombosis and looking into the coagulation cascade, something I knew nothing about. That was much more drastic of a step. Um, the step into heart failure and endothelial cell function was a little bit less because again, I was progressing along the same physiological system. So I can, you know, you can take things that you learn with you. It's, it's so interesting that, you know, we're talking a lot about, about failure and a lot about, you know, um, challenges. And I think it's been a, such a challenging year for everyone yeah. in general. So for, for those of you listening, today is December 20, 30th. 2020 and Brian you're actually closing the loop of of a year of of podcasting as the first podcast episode was recorded on February in February 2020 with Paul and Cell yep and uh, we're, we're closing the loop but I think it's it's uh although it's been a tough year for everyone on so many levels being able to you know end the year and and chat with so many amazing scientists I think it just makes make made the year just uh, just an amazing one, and just because well, I think I think you should be really um, recognized because I think it's a great idea, and and I think um, I hope to see more of these kinds of things pop up because I think it's a really great communication device for for especially for young scientists who may not understand or have a resource to 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 go to 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 try to to think about different ways of using their scientific knowledge to to apply uh, in different areas. So I, I think, you know, I was, I was really excited when you contacted me because I think it, it, it's just an outstanding concept. So I, I think you need to be recognized for the concept. Thank you. I think that's the artist, uh, the scientific artist in me. Yeah. <laughs> was, I was trying to think, so we talked about this, about, you know, projects that not everyone may, may be, uh, you know, it's not mainstream. It's not the flavor of the month. And I was trying to come up with a concept of, you know, still giving back to the GPCR community, still staying close to the science without necessarily staying in the lab. And the first thought I had, well, you know, it's, it's writing a blog or, you know, writing an articles. But then I realized that it's not my forte. I, I loved writing my papers. It was very difficult, very challenging because you needed to find the right word. And I think I, I've heard Michel Bouvier say this is that, you know, when you write something or you're making a presentation, you want to make sure that you're crystal clear so that people don't even ask themselves questions because you're just giving them the answer. And I thought the podcast was, uh, was something that I've never done before. Um, and I thought it was just, you know, let's just try it and see, see where that goes. And I'm so grateful that Today, I get emails from people saying, well, we want to hear about adhesion receptors. And I say, yeah, of course, I want to talk about adhesion GPCRs right. and get there. So the take-home message when it comes to, to junior scientists is that if you have an idea, whether it's a scientific idea or any anything you want to try, just do it. Yeah. And I think you're right. I mean, I think, I think there's so much 
this is such a better venue than a than a than a block. I'm sorry. I I, I think because this has the the personality content that you don't get from a blog with other people and, and you get to understand people's personalities and what they're like. And that's always interesting as humans, right? We find that kind of stuff interesting. So, um, so I think you hit on the right, the right sort of way to approach it. So um, yeah, kudos to you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank I, I hope I answered some of your questions. I don't you know. <laughs> I hope, I, you know, we tend to go off on tangents. <laughs> I think we might want to, we might need to do a, a part three of the episode, but I, th- I think you, I, ha- I always have a lot of fun talking to you, Brian. So I think it's a, it's, it's an awesome, it's an awesome way of, of communicating. And, um, you know, we talked a lot about mentorship in the beginning and in the first time we, we spoke again. And I think one of the take-home messages for 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 people is you know just do it think about what you want to do try it if it doesn't work it's okay it's to make it's fine i didn't know that the podcast would take me where it's taking me and i never ever would have imagined being able to speak to so many phenomenal scientists you know just 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 having you know the email of fiona marshall i mean come on me working in the lab would have never even you know imagined and and you know and and she responds and hey yamina thanks for the for the podcaster you know it's just phenomenal it's just you're right you have to be you you can't be afraid right um of again you can't be afraid of failure you can't be afraid you know nothing risk nothing gained right um you just have to you have to you have to be willing to just put yourself out there and that's sometimes hard for scientists scientists tend to be more introvertive um, I'm certainly an introvert, although people tell me I'm not. I actually am. Um, but it, it, it's, it's um, you know, putting yourself out there, it's always rewarding in the end. And, and it, whether you, you succeed or fail, you've always learned something and you, you've always will take that with you and, and say, look, you know, at least I tried. Right. Um, it's really, really important. Exactly. And uh, I'm an introvert. Well, actually, it depends. Um, I did a multiple, you know, these personality tests and depending on when I do the test, I'm either 49 or 51% introvert. <laughs> so it's a little bit between the two. But when I think back about at the times where I went to conferences and, you know, I saw all these scientists, Nobel Prize laureates and all, all these super star scientists. And I was there alone at my poster and no one came to see my poster. We've all been there, you mean <laughs> And then I said to myself, well, you know, it is what it is. But then then I'm glad I still did it. I still I'm still glad that I stayed at my poster because I did the work. I tried. I was able to publish the work, whether it's appreciated now or it'll be appreciated in 10 years. I still think it was the right question to go for. And yeah, I, think, I think, you know, there is this concept of um, of uh, extroverted introverts. I don't know if you've come across this in your in your reading, but there's certainly a, a subclass of people who are introverted by nature, but but in certain social situ- situations become extroverted yep. um, as a as a way of sheltering their introversion. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, one time I was giving a talk. The first time I, I talked about this whole concept of of um, receptors as, uh, as, as proteins working very similarly, we kind of talked about that last time, you know, I gave this talk at a, at a GPCR conference and, you know, I, I was so nervous because there was a, you know, there was a lot of big wigs in the room and, and, <laughs> and I'm, 
I'm put myself out there in something that could be potentially controversial. I didn't think it was controversial at all. <laughs> um, <clears throat> and I started my talk off by like, because everybody before me is like standing up on this stage and they're walking around talking, giving their talks. I'm like, wow, I could never do that. Um, and I, so I started my talk. I was like, I don't know about you guys, but I'm an introvert and um, I'm, you know, this, <laughs> my inside, I'm screaming to stand behind this podium, but I'm going to try to make it, you know, I'll, I'll step out from the podium to try to make myself do what you guys did, but there's no way I'm going to walk up and down the stage just because I can't do it. Um, it's just not who I am. It's kind of fun. It is. And it's interesting. I think, I think getting, and we're completely taking this conversation out of the scientific, well, not necessarily scientific, but the GPCR realm, but I think it's still important for, for the audience. Um, And I've went through these and I'm sure Brian, you did go through these, you know, discovery phases of, of who you are and what, what are the things that you're comfortable with in order to get where you are today and then tell yourself, well, this is who I am. I'm accepting the person I am and this is how I work. And this is what's important for me. Or to so, me. Yamina, we, I don't know if we were on recording or not. So, remember, we got into this discussion briefly earlier about, about Jordan Peterson. And, yes, we and, were recording, but I think... Right? And, and so, you know, he, he, in his lectures, he talks a lot about understanding your own personality um, and, and, and trying to grow so you can do, grow and develop um, as a human yes. and, uh, and how that applies to what field you choose. And I think it's really important. And, and we shouldn't discount that because it is an important part of, of understanding of where we should be. And, you know, in that and science is no different than that. Um, you, you have to understand who you are, be confident in who you are. I mean, you are who you are um, and, 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 and own it. I mean, yep. and, <laughs> and, own it, yeah. and accept it. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. exactly. And it's, it's, it's sometimes it, it can be difficult. Um, I think learning who you are and sometimes it's shocking. You're like, Oh, that's me. Oof. I'm not sure how I can handle this, but I think you need to figure out who you are, what you are, what you like, what you don't like, which is also very important. And what is your working style, for example, you know, um, and, and you're, that way you find your right path. Right. And, and I think, I do think I, I push back against the whole concept of behaving um, in a scientific way, because at least when I was being trained, there was a certain way you were supposed to carry yourself. There was a certain, there were certain words you were supposed to choose. Cool. You know? <laughs> yeah, no, but really that's the way the training was. It's like, you know, they trained you, you have to present yourself like this to, in order to be taken seriously as a scientist. And I've spent 25 years pushing back against that because I don't think that's really accurate. And I feel like as scientists, we should be who we are. Um, just because I don't act like somebody else doesn't mean I'm not a good scientist. It, it just means I'm different. And, um, you know, so anyway. Exactly. No, I was just going to say that, you know, and once once you accept who you are as a scientist, as a human, and you're at peace with the person you are, uh, people will see it because that'll also show your how confident you are at the end of the and day. And we need that, right? Yeah. This whole concept of, of diversity and uh, of thought, diversity of, of background and, and so forth is really, very really important to, to innovation and driving the next discoveries. So if we're all, if we're all sort of like, um, like everybody else, we're not going to, we're not going to innovate. Exactly. Exactly. So whether you're an introvert or an extrovert listening, um, it's okay. 
Both, both are okay. <laughs> just, right. just do your thing, follow your own path, and uh, and then you know. Yeah, be true to yourself, right? Yeah. I think that that's very important. Uh, so one one last thought: I did this this insight test to figure out you know kind of my work style and and, and things like that. And it's interesting because so I'm, I'm, I can be very scientific, but I can be also very emotional at the same time. And apparently, it's very rare. Having you know that that straight logical thought and the emotion associated with it, but uh, my husband could attest to the fact that in the lab my bench looked pristine and at home my desk did not look that pristine. So <laughs> then again, we all have our our little uh, little issues there. But I accept the fact that my desk doesn't look uh, as pristine as my bench used to. Uh, mine doesn't either. <laughs> <laughs> so there's two of. I'm pretty sure it's not it's not just the two of us at this point, but it's uh it's just it's kind of uh you know it's who you are and, and that's it. As long as you find what you're looking for in that in that uh in that environment, then you're you should be good. All right, Brian. Um I think we went around, we talked uh, about your career, how industry works, what do you do, how you think about some some of the problems that yeah, that you work on, how you cope with the fact that you know some projects get cut because it's no longer a valuable route to 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 go for. The other th- the last thing I wanted to kind of touch upon is um we talked about how projects get chosen. And I think one thing that we we didn't really articulate is the fact that there is so many things that we all could be working on. And the fact that at some point you have to make a choice. Correct. On that. And I was wondering, what are your thoughts on, you know, making, making that choice or how do you. Wow. That that's a really highly personal thing, right? I mean, that's really comes down to your own personal preference and, um, and, and intuition, uh, intuition is, should never be discounted either in, in scientific endeavor. Um, there's a huge component of, of intuition and, um, I've always relied really heavily on my gut. Um, you, not to say that, that data doesn't drive decisions because they do, but when it came to generating hypotheses there, there have been times in my career when I just knew I, I, I that, that, that's, that was the right answer. Um, you know, the whole thing with, with the FSH story, that was, yeah. that was all based on intuition because um, there was no existing data. You know, we had to generate it. So it's, you know, when you're really innovating, intuition is really, really important um, to generating hypotheses. And then you use the data to drive the decision, right? So the hypothesis is driven, I think, from intuition, at least in my case. Yeah. Um, based upon historical data as well. There's not to say I don't read the literature because I do, <laughs> but the fact of the matter is it has to make sense, but there's certain key, all the key discoveries I've made in my career were all based on initially on intuition and then, um, and how the puzzle pieces fit together. And then from there, you use the data to drive whether or not you're correct. And there's been plenty of cases where I was wrong, um, but it's more than half the time I'm right. <laughs> Which is which is already pretty good. When you think about it's pretty it. good. I think it's pretty good. Um, you know, I think that's all you can hope for. Um, and and but the important thing is to be confident enough in yourself to say no, I was wrong. And that, yeah. and that's really another important concept, right? And I think people, you have to have confidence in your ability to say, you know, no, I was I was totally wrong. 
yeah, I think that's that's also co- that also comes with with confidence, as you mentioned, where where sometimes you're wrong. You cannot always be right, and when you're wrong, you're wrong. But when you're right, you know it's all the more you know you, you savor it. Absolutely. <laughs> I'm still savoring it. <laughs> you know, that whole circadian stuff I did back in the late 1980s, I'm still savoring it. Um, because, I mean, that's what we are as scientists, right? We want to have an impact and we want to, we want to, we want to, um, we want people to recognize it. And, yeah. and so when you do have those brief moments of success, you, you, you definitely will savor it and never forget it. I mean, some people are better at it. I mean, <laughs> look than others um certainly there are people that are a lot better at it than i am but I, I think that you know again you just have to have confidence in who you are and your abilities and that's not that's not easy in this field uh, because we are wrong a lot of the time exactly exactly but that, that's that's the beauty of it and i think that's that's why we need a diverse crowd and we don't need scientists to come out of the same molds and act the same way uh, the more diverse we are, the the more statistically, the more answers we get together. That's right, <laughs> correctly. And and again, this comes with collaboration. This comes with cooperation and working across. And I, I you know, seeing in my career o- over time, the amount of cooperation and collaboration that now takes place compared to when I first started, yep. uh, is very very um, encouraging and heartening to me because I think there was a time when, when scientists were very sort of isolationist, at least in the way I grew up in, in the field. And, mm-hmm. and now to see people working across many different universities and working on problems in a, in a more global way, I think is, is just awesome because that's how we're going to really solve the tough problems. I agree. I agree. And it's, and it's some, I, for a long time, I thought I, I was, I was kind of naive of thinking that, you know, why, why all the secrecy, and why don't we work together? Because it's so much faster and so much better. And I think it's a more harmonious way of of getting to those to those answers. But now I I see I see the difference as well. That yeah, I think this is why it's important to choose your collaborators. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, you know, uh, it, you you can't be naive, totally naive. Uh, but you know, because it is somewhat of an idealistic viewpoint. Um, yep. that's, always based in reality, but I think it's more and more based on reality. And, and, you know, the more I, especially I have to say what I've seen in pharmacology um, lately, is really, really positive, you know, seeing people coming together to work on problems and across areas. And so, yeah, it's, it's really cool. It's also one, one last thing, one last thought about, about collaboration. I think it's also a matter of compatibility as yes, when you say, choose your collaborators, you will choose your collaborators based on your personality and their personality, mm-hmm. and and it's it's like you're you're it's like choosing your friends basically, and you're doing something totally, together. Yeah. You're totally right. <laughs> so, totally choose your so friends carefully. <laughs> you know, um, yeah, it's it, you have to be you have to be careful. But at the same point, you know, uh, I think if if you're a good scientist, that will come out in the wash. Um, yep. It will always reveal itself in the end, um, even though you may go through challenging times or whatever. Um, if you stay true to your principles and your ethics and your morals and 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 who you are, it'll it'll ultimately reveal itself. Absolutely. So this was uh, a really great pleasure of chatting with you. I think we went from science to philosophy to through Jordan B. Peterson, but uh, I, I love I love these conversations. Thank you so much, Brian. No, thank you again for the opportunity. It's just awesome. Um, 
for somebody like me in industry who, you know, works in anonymity most of the time, it's really, really a, a rare opportunity. And I'm very, very grateful um, for, for it. Um, so thank you, Jimmy. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Brian. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us for this Dr. GPCR podcast episode. I'd like to thank our guest, as well as our team members, Attila Forrest, Shivani Sajdev, and Jin Chung. Please subscribe to the Dr. GPCR newsletter, find us on YouTube, and if you like our podcast, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Another way to support us is to share the podcast, the newsletter, and the virtual cafe with your colleagues. Email us with any questions or suggestions at hello at drgpcr.com. Until next time, stay safe. Stay safe.